Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing a migrant church in el siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the migrant church continue to thrive? What should a migrant church look like today? These questions and more are what we explore together with your hosts, Emmanuel Padilla y la doctora Elizabeth Conde Frazier. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we are joined by friends and family who are of mixed heritage. Their mestizaje is not coming from the historical mix, but a more recent intermixed family. Our panel of modern mestizos speak about how they navigate this for themselves and what it is they find along their journey as they live with people who may not understand their mixedness. So siéntase en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. Familia, bienvenidos al primer episodio en vivo of the Mestizo Podcast. If you're new to the show, welcome to a mixed space, a space where we live in the hyphen, ni de aquí ni de allá, as the shirt says. Uh, we're excited to have you join us. In case you missed it, make sure that you go back and check out some of our episodes on your favorite podcast app. In particular, I'd love to recommend the episode with Dr. Willie Jennings, who joined us to talk about uh, a church after whiteness, a vision of the church beyond whiteness. I'd also recommend that you check out some of our episodes, including Dr. Ariel Aquines talking about Afro-Latinidad, Sandra Maria Van Opstel talking about decolonizing multicultural church models. So let me recommend that you go back and look at those. I also want to uh, greet and welcome some of our guests tonight, starting with First, our brother, Nathan Cartagena, who's assistant professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. He's also the biggest troublemaker we have here tonight. Nathan, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you all. Thank you. Thank you, brother. We're also joined by Special Projects Coordinator for InterVarsity's La Fe and co-author of the book, Hermanas Natalia Con Rivera. Hermana, welcome to the show. Super excited to be with you all. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for joining us, sister. And almost as if it's an anniversary special, we have him on apparently in May every year. We are joined once more by our brother, Robert Chad Romero. This time, well, Round Church is behind him. It's, it's, it's in history mm -hmm. almost, but it's history <laughs> as well. Welcome, brother. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on again. Thank you, brother. And I'm excited about this special guest. Uh, I got a little confused when she joined. I didn't know if uh, Elizabeth had found the Fountain of Youth or what happened here because they look so closely related. But we're joined by celebrated educator Evangelina Morales. Evangelina, welcome. Encantada. Thank you so much. Humbled to be here tonight. Hey, if you're online, tonight's a special night because you get the chance to write your questions right into the comments on Facebook. So feel free to pop those in there. We're going to be having a conversation and we're going to be going. But sometimes there are things that come up that you might want to say. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at World Outspoken, as you see there on the banner. If you have questions after the show, maybe you're listening to this podcast on the podcast app and aren't live with us on Facebook. You can also submit those questions by calling 
712-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it at the end of the season in our mailbag episode. Now, one last thing that I'll say before we get into it, uh, into the actual content of the show. At the end of this episode, we're doing our book giveaway. Many of you submitted questions for the book giveaway. So stay tuned to the end because we have a copy of Daniel Rodriguez, A Future for the Latino Church that we'll be giving away. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, the first question that I have is for all of us as a group. Now, I'm going to give a quick shout out to my fiance, Kelly Carnathan, because she inspired this question. I am marrying a sister from the South, ladies and gents. And what that means is I've had more Southern food. I've tried more Southern food than I've ever tried in my life. Uh, and that that brought up this question. Uh, so we'll start with Hermano Cartagena. Uh, I, what I want to know is, what are the worlds that you come from, the worlds that shape you? And what's your favorite food from those worlds? We'll start with you, brother. Yeah, well, again, thank you. It's a joy to be with you all. My mom's family is from the U.S. South, which means I have a special place in my heart for apple pie and a special place in my heart for homemade baked mac and cheese. It's fantastic. My dad's family, they're from Puerto Rico, which means I love real avocado de Puerto Rico, these massive avocados that are the size of U.S. footballs. And it means I also am desperate every time I go back to La Isla to go to the Panaderia and get some real Puerto Rican bread, because I don't know what they do, y'all, but that bread is something to Panso, wow. Oh, okay, it's so good. I'm even down for the pan pobre because it's delicious. <laughs> El paso mal pan pobre. That is that good stuff, brother. Hey, thank you, Nathan. You got to start it with the aguacate. By the way, that is my favorite word to say in Spanish and avoid saying in English. The English version of that word, it just doesn't sound as good. Avocado versus aguacate. I love it much more in Spanish. <laughs> Uh, Hermana Con Rivera, what about you? What are the two worlds that shape you and what's your favorite food between them? Uh, super hard question um, for the food part, but I am half Argentinian, half Armenian, born in Argentina. Um, so obviously Milanesa empanadas y dulce de leche is my jam. Um, and I love dulce de leche and about everything. Um, but for the Armenian side is um, boreg, which is like their empanada, but it's cheese. And then kebab and pilaf rice, um, and of course baklava. So, I mean, I could list so much more, but uh, it's a great question. And you know, comida brings us all together. So I love it. Amen to that, sister. Are I we went gonna make it through this. I'm hungry already. <laughs> We're doing this at dinner time and talk. Starting with a question about food, maybe not the wisest choice. I went to Israel last year and had baklava in Israel, and it changed my life, sister. So I, I appreciate Ooh, I haven't had that from Israel, but yo, if they can beat Lebanon and Armenia, I want to see their baklava. I don't know if they can, but I, I will say I'm, 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 I have a sweet tooth, so I'm very with that choice. Uh, hermano Chao Rivera, or Chao Romero Rivera, I'm mixing up names here. Hermano Chao Romero, what about you? So... My dad is from Chihuahua, Mexico, so that's the northern part, kind of next to Texas. My mom is from Hubei in central China. So I'm biased, but I think I did actually grow up with the best food um, that there is. I love, <laughs> on the Chinese side, I mean, there's so many good things. Where do I even choose? But like my family particularly loves dumplings. There's this place called uh, Din Tai Fung near our house that is just incredible. 
I love I love chili rellenos on the Mexican side and so many others. Um, but yeah, I think I do have the best food. I'm sorry, everybody. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> I uh, I'm not gonna fight you on that. You know, I'm not gonna fight you on that. But I do. I will say the next person is under pressure to answer this in a very particular way, right? Because they're they're talking about moms cooking. But Hermana Morales, what are the two worlds that that shape you, and what is your favorite food between those two worlds? So the two worlds that really shape me are uh, the world of the Boricuas, Puerto Rico, and my mom's arroz con gandules and um, the tostones, hands down, every day. And I think the only hard thing about having arroz con gandules is that you have to make sofrito. And I'm telling you, when you start getting into making the sofrito, you, your eyes start watering and tearing up, but it's part of the sacrifice to have good food. Um, with my father, my father is a native from Philadelphia and um, his family has lots of roots in the Southern tradition as well. Um, fried chicken and greens is, is where it's at. And it's the kind that it's so good, it makes your hair, your hair curl up even more. So, and then since then, Oh, I'm telling you, wonderful. <laughs> Elizabeth, and, just, just to make yeah. sure to clarify, you were making your, your sofrito homemade there with your daughter? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you're going to oh, give the experience, if you're going to do the experience, you got to do it right. You know, you can't just go to this market and buy somebody else's sofrito. Uh-uh. You're going to do this. You got to show all of the roots. So you got to go down to the herbs and how to cut them. And, you know, you got to do the thing right. Hey, all right. Do do your thing, sister. For those that don't know, if you haven't noticed by resemblance, Elizabeth is indeed Hermana Evangelina Morales's mom. And when she talked about her mom's arroz con gandules y tostones, she's talking about Elizabeth. Elizabeth, you have a favorite food between the two worlds, between you and your husband? Well, in my house, we call it his black food. And what we've done is instead of having two separate pieces, we've put them together. And putting them together uh, ends up being something like black-eyed peas that uh, you usually have in the African-American tradition for our uh, New Year's. And what we did was we made them with sofrito. And everybody would come to the house and his family and say, oh, my God, you put your toe in this. What, what, is, what is it that you do with your black-eyed peas? And he would say it's a secret ingredient. And the secret ingredient is sofrito because they were his black-eyed black peas. Man, black-eyed peas cooked in sofrito. I'm having a hard time imagining that. But since I'm married to, a, I'm marrying a woman from the south. We're gonna try that at some point. I might Facetime you and have you teach us how to do it. Walk us through it. All right. Well, hey, I want to know. All of you are uh, children of some kind of recent mix, recent racial mix, and that shapes the journey that you have. I want to know how that's shaped, how your heritage has shaped your career or ministry path. We'll start with you, uh, Robert especially since it really speaks to how it shaped your book and your recent studies. But tell us a little bit about how your mixed heritage has shaped your career ministry path. It shaped everything. <laughs> um, like when I was in law school, I thought I was off to just become a rich corporate lawyer and make a lot of money. And Jesus got a hold of my life. And I felt God knocking on my heart saying, Robert, you never asked me what I wanted to do with your life. And after I did that, I thought, what's the topic that I always think about even if people didn't pay me, what do I think about all the time? And I think about race, being mixed race and, you know, my Mexican identity, what that means, my Chinese identity, um, 
how that relates to to Jesus and the Bible. And I, I remember, you know, one day thinking about all that and just reflecting like, Lord, I don't understand this, like from the, the perspective of, of what society is teaching me. Show me from your word, right? And that's begun like a 25-year journey of just trying to understand that. And so that's just what I do at UCLA too. Like, so I'll give an example. Today, today at UCLA, in my grad class, we were reading this book about Chinese Panamanians. It was so awesome. And the latest theory about diaspora and citizenship and what does it home mean and belonging. And, and as I'm as we're teaching the class and students are presenting, I'm just taking furious notes and I'm thinking about all the Bible parallels, right? Things like, for example, you know, um, when one student was saying, you know, migration is sort of viewed as something aberrational, right, in, in U.S. society, but, but migration it's just what we do as human beings, right? And I thought about Genesis chapter one, where God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and fill the earth, right? And anyway, so my whole life is just the intersection of my faith um, and, and racial theory in the university and then trying to get that all out there and understand for myself first. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's shaped your studies as well as how you've engaged students from the sounds of your story. Uh, speaking of students, Hermana Con Rivera, how has it shaped your career in ministry? Um, yeah, I, I think in most ways I agree with uh, Dr. Arumero. Like I, um, I, I was transformed by my college experience with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and that's when I realized that Jesus um, wasn't blue-eyed or um, pale skin and. And, you know, growing up in a mostly white churches, like you just sort of get that. And um, having been exposed to ethnic journeys um, in college and being invited to, to take those steps that take years of investigating who you are and um, why God made you the way that you are made. And I think the biggest thing for me is I'm called to be a peacemaker. I'm called to be a bridge builder and I'm called to be a, a, a reconciler to different groups. And so um, being mixed, I you can go in and out of different worlds and you can relate to different people and you can understand the angst of never really fitting in or being outcast or being um, told certain things. And so I feel like I'm a natural bridge builder. And so I do that with people with their questions about their faith, um, questions about, um, I just love not helping people navigate. Um, and so that's what I think people of mixed backgrounds are total. Like they, they live in between multiple worlds and they never really feel a hundred percent comfortable, but then, um, then they feel a hundred percent comfortable in multiple worlds. And so it's just a, it's amazing to see how, um, how God, God makes us this way and then it helps other people. So, um, yeah, that's my answer. Yeah, it helps us be bridge people. Yeah. Old worlds together, right? Like the link that ties them together. I really appreciate that answer, sister. Hermano Cartagena, what about you? How has your mixedness shaped the way that you do ministry? So I, I want to go back a little ways in my history. I vividly remember being in the sixth grade, and I've actually written about this uh, for World Outspoken. And I was in my first ever English honors class. And during the first week of this class, 
I'm sitting in the front right next to the teacher's podium. And at that point, I didn't realize that this had to do with racial surveillance, but I unfortunately was soon to learn that lesson. And as my sixth grade English honors teacher begins writing on the board, I'm furiously taking notes because I want to do as well as I can. And she calls me out and claims that I'm not paying attention when I was and I was taking notes. And she ends up charging uh, through a course of a conversation that the only reason I was in that class was for racial diversity numbers. And I, I share this in part because it was, it was devastating. It contributed to me imbibing deep forms of internalized racism. But I also say it because my mom as an Anglo did not understand any of the forms of racism that I encountered. And my dad, given his family's history of um, assimilation and uprooting from, from uh, Rican at times and, and being in, in the U.S. Air Force and traveling around, it, it made it so that he didn't understand, especially some of the racial dynamics that are distinctive to the Northeast. So, so for example, I was routinely racialized as black because I'm, I'm Puerto Rican, even though I'm extremely light-skinned, it didn't matter. And so I spent much of my life trying to figure out what is going on? Why am I being racialized in different ways? Why is there so much disdain from some of my teachers towards Puerto Ricans? Why am I seen as a criminal, as, as lawless? Why am I seen as somebody that's probably hypersexually promiscuous, et cetera, et cetera? And it ends up that it's not really until I start my master's program at Texas A&M University, when I meet Dr. Tommy J. Curry, who's now the professor of the very first ever Black Male Studies Institute at Edinburgh, in Scotland, uh, he introduces me to critical race theory and to race scholarship. And I think he mainly did it because he believed that understanding critical race theory would help me to understand the unique ways in which U.S. law helped to produce my lived experience as somebody that is um, Puerto Rican. And so the more I studied that scholarship, the more I found that the research I was doing was the me-search. It, it, it was me pouring through archives, pouring through law review articles, pouring through some of the literatures that uh, that Hermano uh, Joe Romero is talking about when he's talking about the race theory, to understand uh, myself and understand in particular how it is that the Lord was going to redeem forms of familial trauma on both sides, forms of imbibing Anglo-Saxon white supremacy on both sides, and I didn't know that that was part of my sanctification. I didn't know that was one of the things that the Lord had accomplished. It was my, as it were, my liberation and freedom from certain forms of generational racism and the ways in which it's it's maimed our bodies and maimed our tongues. Uh, but that's been that's been my trajectory, and I'm grateful the Lord has me at a place like Wheaton College where I get to teach and work through my experiences with students who are going through similar experiences as well. Hugo Perez just wrote online there that your experience gives him flashbacks, and apparently he's been following your CRT scholarship. So we're grateful that he's been following that there. Uh, also, thank you, brother, for sharing your story. I think what you do in sharing it to students and sharing it here is is powerful and important because it helps us to, to highlight the fact that this isn't unusual, right? We can't be gaslit anymore, right? This This happens to too many of us. Hermana Morales, what can you tell us about how your mixedness has shaped your story and your career path? So very much so, um, like um, Mr. Cartagena, um, the the journey started when I was very young. Um, there was a, a realization very early on 
that um, obviously there were some differences between me and my mother. We weren't the same skin color, the same skin tone even. Um, and being in school and having students or friends notice that difference. And so I can remember asking my mother those questions, mom, why is it that we're still related and you're still my mother, but we have a different skin tone? And why is it that on a standardized test, right? I can't, they're asking me to only check one bubble or put in one bubble and I can't write that I'm Hispanic and I'm black. Why can't I do that? Um, and so um, my parents, thank goodness for them because they, the two of them together really worked very hard um, to, to advocate for me um, and worked very hard to give affirmations at that very young age. Um, I, and I think that that has shaped where I have gone into teaching and, and the world of education as well, because um, having that now gives me a place to know that my students also need advocacy, no matter who they are, but especially my students who are um, of, of mixed races and come from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. Um, and they also need that affirmation as well. Um, and, and it does, it needs to happen at a very early age because um, that that awareness happens very early. It does, and it causes quite a bit of confusion. Uh, Elizabeth, you wanna comment on the stories you've heard so far? Well, <clears throat> I think it's important to say, now each one of you um, teaches, which is interesting, um, but you teach in different, in different uh, backgrounds, different places. Um, the contexts in which you teach, the kinds of students that you teach is different. And Evangelina in particular, you teach children, um, which is different than teaching college-age students who can do abstract thinking and you can read a book on critical race theory with them, and, you know, help them to um, get it and that sort of thing. But you're teaching children and they're not able to do abstract thinking yet, right? So... It'd be interesting for each one of you to, to say um, how your journey uh, helps to create spaces of empowerment for your children. Uh, I talked about affirmation. Um, we, we've talked about the kinds of things that we share with students, uh, what we have them to read and, and do the analysis and so forth. But from your particular context, um, how do you make these spaces of empowerment? Nathan, I'm going to add that to the question I was already going to ask you, because you've talked about this publicly about your own relationship with your father and about your relationship con tu hija. As it relates to the Spanish language, you've spoken about there being a loss. So why are you working to recapture that part of yourself now? And how has that changed the dynamics of your family? But to quote Elizabeth, how's that shaped the way that you've done your, your relationships with your father as well as with your own daughter? It's a great question. I think it's important to stress that I have visited Puerto Rico, but I, I've never lived there for any sustained period of time. And one of the reasons I say that is when you're part of uh, the diaspora, you look for ways to identify consuente uh, with your with your with your people. And I, I think one of the things that has stood out to me is that especially in the Northeast. There were purity tests, is what I call them. So people wanted to know if you were a legit 
portion uh, that was from Puerto Rico, or if you were a gringo, a gringa, are you are you one that's just so anglicized? We we should shouldn't bother with you. You're you're kind of white trash. Some people would even uh, would even say. And one of the things that happened to me very early on, uh, even in sixth grade, I experienced this. Is I talk about my English teacher saying that I didn't belong in the class. I was only there for racial diversity numbers. It was also the case that a lot of uh, Latinos and Latinas didn't want to have much to do with me because my Spanish was not very good. And I ended up operating for a long time in what I will call a hyper-individual frame, where I thought that my abilities to speak or not speak a language were all up to me. And it took me a long time to realize, no, nobody just gets to choose whatever their first language is going to be. And what, whether or not, for example, when you're very young, you're learning multiple languages, that's something that goes on with your parents. And that led me to think long and hard about some of the reasons why in my dad's side of the family, um, there was both a, a, at times a, a failure to pass on Spanish, but there was also two other things. There was a fear of speaking Spanish. So there are times when I'm with my uh, abuelo and my abuela, and rather than saying our names are Jorge and, and Marta, they'll say my, our names are George and Martha. I remember hearing this going, this, but that's not really your name. This is weird. I also remember times where my, my family, they, they'd be in public settings. And even though just as we were getting out the car, they'd been speaking Spanish in the car, oof, switched into English. And I, I came to realize that some of this has to do with survival tactics. Some of this has to do with trying to avoid certain modes of surveillance. And it has to do, therefore, with generational pains, generational traumas, generational issues of forced assimilation. And that led me to realize that if it took communal pressures and it took generations, as it were, to lose some of the Spanish, it was going to take a communal effort and generations to retrieve it. And I, I want to stress the retrieval because this was something that should have been handed down, but it, but it wasn't for various reasons. It, it wasn't. And it, it was, this is important for me, too, because, again, it helps me move outside of a hyper-individual frame where I'm saying it's all up to me or not. And so to get to something that's very important, I remember talking with mi esposa about this. And though she hasn't, she didn't grow up speaking Spanish, one of the ways that she helped me to feel loved and to feel seen was to say, I will learn Spanish. We will teach our daughter Spanish. And we might have to go slowly, and we're going slowly. But this is one of the things we want to do because it's a family. The Cartagenas want to retrieve Spanish, and then we want to pass it down. Um, I think I should add one last thing to this, and that is part of my experience as one that both had family from the South and family from, from Puerto Rico, is I've been able to experience how hard it is for people that don't have what are supposed to be the normal accents for a particular area to feel at home and to feel okay talking to other people who they have a hard time hearing and understanding. And I think some of the most beautiful work I was able to do, quite bluntly, came when I would serve as a sort of translator from my mamá to my abuela or from abuela to my mamá. And in that moment, as we've talked about being a bridge, I saw the ways in which, and the ways in which quite bluntly, me and my siblings were manifestations of the kingdom. We were manifestations of what it means to have peoples coming together, forming deep bonds of unity, and trying to live out life together. Yes, we failed in all sorts of ways, but there were plenty of times where it was beautiful. Praise God, brother. You're going you to make me cry here. I'm not going to make it through the episode. Thanks for, for sharing that. 
Evangelina and Robert, we'll, we'll start maybe with you, Evangelina, and then go to Robert on this. How have you resisted those social pressures to choose one of your two worlds and reject another? You talked about it earlier, hermana. Uh, you mm -hmm. mentioned how, hey, I don't want to check just one box. I, I'm part of two. How have you resisted those social pressures to choose one world and reject another? So um, that standardized test, I'm telling you that that'll get you every time. Um, and when I was first starting to take those standardized tests in grade school, they had in parentheses only check one. And so I didn't, I didn't check one, I checked both. And then I would write in on the test, even though they told you not to, what it was, what my identity was, because that was important. Um, I needed to affirm that for myself. Um, so that was one of the things um, that I did. Um, another thing I learned early on to do was to make friends with everybody on the playground and learn about every single person on the playground. Um, it wasn't just about having um, one set of friends. And so like uh, Nathan Cartagena was just talking about, he, he was talking about being a translator, but we're all, when you live at the crossroads that way, right? You're, and you're not just a bridge, you're really truly an ambassador, right? Um, so you serve as translator, you serve as liaison, uh, you serve as peacekeeper in many different situations and with many different kinds of people, not just people within your own ethnic race, but really and truly um, with everybody that you come in contact with. And, um, while it can be a struggle to have to always be explaining yourself, like he said, it's also very beautiful because um, you get a chance then for others to hear that story and to come together around that story. And um, there's a reconciliation process that happens. What does Paul tell us? That we should be ambassadors of reconciliation. What you're pointing out, sister, is that as mixed race people, you have an opportunity to do that in unique ways in a racialized world. Uh, it's beautiful, and I think it's very important to be reminded that this gives echoes to the gospel. It bears witness to the gospel's work in our lives. Hermano Charromero, what about you? Yeah, like as the old guy, official old guy on, on the podcast, like <laughs> have like a unique journey. Um, so I went to school like as, as like in a kindergarten, like in the mid 1970s. And people might not realize it, but like in LA and in most of the United States, schools were not desegregated until like 1970. So I live very much in the hangover of, of, of segregation, even though I'm not that old. Um, and there was this extreme pressure to, to somehow fit into whiteness, um, to fit into whiteness. And so, um, I remember like like the first day in, kin in kindergarten or first grade, someone went up to me and said, okay, here, here's a refrigerator, open it up. There's a Coke, drink it. And then they said, me Chinese, me play joke, me do pee pee in your Coke. And I remember like as a little six year old being like, dang, I don't want to be Chinese, right? And other things like that, right? And the pressure, the pressure was like to, to fit into to whiteness, right? And ironically, my Mexican side from Chihuahua, Northern Mexico, gave me the, 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 the closest access to whiteness. Um, and so I really leaned into the Mexican side for those reasons for like the first 20 years of my life, really. I mean, there's other stories, but um, and then when I went into law school and, and Jesus got a hold of my life 
then I finally began to explore my Chinese side and really like going to a Chinese church and that kind of thing. And then it's been a process where, um, I mean, I'm, it, it's, it's a journey, but what I've come to, the, the, the scripture that gave me the healing was Revelation chapter 21, verses 26 and 27, where John says that the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into the new Jerusalem forever. The glory and honor of the nations, the cultural treasure and wealth of the nations will be brought in, right? Um, and this is what I tell my kids, and my kids are three times mixed race over. Um, at least I say, I say, Robert Jr., you are God's son in Christ Jesus. And what makes you God's unique son in Christ Jesus is, first of all, your individual personal gifts and talents, that you're good at science and and, and you like to play the guitar, blah, 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 all those kind of things. Another thing that makes you unique is that you are, you're a boy, you're, you're a male. That's part of, of that unique image of God in you. And I say each of each of your pots of each of your cultural treasures is like a pot of treasure. Your Mexican treasure is like a pot of rubies. Your Chinese treasure is like a pot of, I don't know, gold. Your German Midwestern pot is like a pot of, I don't know, whatever. And I say, take those pots and knock them onto the table and mix them all up. Right? And all of that together makes you uniquely you know, God's son in Christ Jesus. Not parts, but all that together holistically makes you God's son in Christ Jesus. And that that understanding has brought so much healing to me. And what's crazy is like, I don't, it's just an experiment, right? No one taught me this, but like I've been sharing that to my kids from a very young age. And they don't seem to have the same struggles that I did. So praise Jesus. It's amazing. Praise Jesus indeed. Before we go to Hermana Con Rivera, Elizabeth, you want to comment on that? He he's out here preaching to us. And I know normally you when, when we talk scripture, you, you got something you want to say. <laughs> no, I think that um Revelation has very beautiful imagery of the nations coming together. Um, and they all come together and they're all honored and valued. There isn't a, a difference made between them. Uh, we recognize each and every one of them and the gifts that they all have to bring. And that is, is, is a richness. That's a, an image that we all need to keep in mind because we need to rehearse that here. We're going to be so out of step. You know, when, when, when you go... <clears throat> I didn't grow up dancing, right? Because uh, I grew up when we weren't supposed to dance and that kind of thing. But I didn't, I didn't uh, want that for my kids. But when you uh, are going to a dance, you practice, you know, the dance that you know that everybody's doing and you know what's hot and all of that. And you practice that because you don't want to be out of step when you hit that dance. And when we all go to that, you know, feast that we're all invited to, and that's going to be a part of of, of the new. Uh, Jerusalem, the new world, the new creatures that we are already in the process of becoming. You don't want to be out of step. So absolutely, we need to keep that imagery in mind. And the more that we help people to understand that we're not complete without each other. <clears throat> and persons who come together because we're human beings and they're able to already recognize the beauty in each other and they come together and they form families and they honor the heritage 
that they that they're bringing together and and they value all of that you're, you're keeping in step you're learning what it means to do that i mean i think natalia said it well a few moments ago when she was talking about um how we learn to to feel uncomfortable but then how we learn to be comfortable the the i i want to challenge the word uncomfortable because i think that we learn from the majority culture that you're supposed to be comfortable and what comfortable is supposed to be. But instead, this supposed not so comfortable zone is the real zone, right? It is the real zone. It's the zone where you you can sit down and you can appreciate what it is to hear somebody, you know, you can laugh when somebody says, do you want menudo? And they're looking for change in their pocket, right? <laughs> because they don't understand that it's Gandinga. Okay? And and you're the person who's sitting there, and you can see that this is about to happen, and you can sit there, and you can say, okay, I'm going to sit right here, and when this guy asks for this, you know, and right, and, and you're ready to do that, and it's fun. It's a great piece to do. But you can do that even with cultures that aren't yours. I mean, when I went to California from Boston, and I had uh, students in my classroom who were from so many different countries, who were from Tonga and Samoa and who were from, from Botswana and who came from Germany and who came from, from Libya. I mean, we had to sit down and I, I threw out my syllabus. I threw out the syllabus. I said, you know what? <clears throat> we're going to create the syllabus together. And instead, the syllabus came from um, sharing our journeys who we were, and everybody had to create the syllabus. They had to bring things for us to read together, things that would help to define. And we used each other's languages to talk about the things we wanted to talk about. There are words that you cannot translate into English. It's just, right? So instead, we would use the word from that particular language, and we had a, a glossary of words that we would borrow from one another. And I remember, you know, that, that we would all sit there and very comfortably use this tongue word named fotogia to, to deal with a particular level of power, um, you know, coming from the, the context of village and so on and so forth. And so we used that word and, and everybody was like, wow, you know, this is like, we, we were just borrowing from each other that richness. Amen. And that's what it's about. We miss out so much on that richness. And I wanted to say to, to my brother, Nathan, you got to check out this song. It's a song that comes from a poet. And it's a song that talks about, even if I were born on the moon, I would still be Puerto Rican. Have you, have you read that one? No, oh, Hermana, no. Check that one out. You have Boricua and- Five moon. song recommendations. <laughs> Roy Brown. Roy Brown took the, 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 the poet who wrote it, the original poem, is by Juan Antonio Corretjer, who's a Puerto Rican uh, singer and songwriter. But Roy Brown popularized it and adopted it to song as his response as a mixed-race person to someone who said to him that he wasn't really Puerto Rican because he hadn't been born on the island. And he then created this song. And that's a song that I used to speak to my, my son who came to me and it was harder for him to pick up, you know, Spanish because he didn't he didn't start speaking till he was four because he was creating his own language. 
okay? A philologist had to tell me, your kid's not retarded, your kid is not um, deaf, you know, your kid is creating his own language because you have a language and your husband has a language and he's created this whole grammar system and everything else, okay? <clears throat> so, you know, that's how he dealt with bilingualism in his head. He's been a really interesting person. <clears throat> and the only one who really understands him is his sister. Evangelina was great with him. You know, it was like, hey, he's your brother, go deal with him. Because I knew that she would figure him out. She would decode him. But he once cried. Talk about the angst that Natalia was talking about. He was was crying. He was seven years old, and he was, like, really crying in pain. And he said, what kind of a Puerto Rican am I? And I can't speak Spanish. Do everybody speak Spanish? And I said, Tim, you are a fabulous Puerto Rican. Listen to this. And I played this song. Oh, he fell in love with the song. He was seven. He fell in love with the song because the song affirmed him as a Puerto Rican. And I, and I didn't affirm him because of the essentialisms, right? Right. The, the, the proofs that, that you were talking about, Nathan, that's not what makes you, you know, who you are. It's because it valued all of that mix, right? And I'm so sorry, Emmanuel. That's what you get when you ask a preacher to preach. Hey, you did well. You preached the whole sermon. I'm grateful. Hey, Brother Robert, you wanted to comment on this before we talked, because this mix gets even more complicated. And I want to get into those even deeper, more complex levels. But I know you wanted to speak to this. I also need. I'll, I'll, I'll just drop one thing in real fast from my class today. One of my students said, "What if home is not a geographic place, but home is about relationships and commitment, common commitment to a higher cause?" Right. And that was, you know, we're taught, we're conditioned that. Um, home is is being fixed in one place, right? And sitting there for like 60 years and paying off the mortgage and all that kind of stuff. And that's okay. But in most of human history, that's not how we operate as human beings. We're constantly moving, right? And I just, I just, you know, present that as a question too. What is home? What is home? What is home? What if home is the connections that we have and not the lands that we're from when we're exiled from them? But if it's the stories that we share with one another, that's very interesting. Uh, I'm going to be thinking about perspective. Yeah, it helps us with perspective indeed. Hermana mm -hmm. Conrivera, can I ask a question here? And I, I don't know the answer to this, uh, but in terms of these kinds of stories and connections that we have, uh, you said you're Armenian and that you're from Argentina. Now I'm, I'm second guessing myself. Uh, was there religious diversity present in that heritage? Because, you know, we, we all have a kind of, mixed race background, but but talk to us about some of the diversity in your background and how it might get more complicated. Um, actually, there isn't. Um, I come from a Jewish grandfather who fled the Holocaust, and then I come from an Armenian grandfather who fled the genocide. Um, both chose Jesus in different ways, and both came, um, the Armenian one, the first country in the world, uh, first government to claim Christianity is, is Armenian. And so um, I come from a huge legacy of Jesus lovers. And, you know, Armenians were, were killed for not converting to Islam in 1915 and, and during the genocide. And my grandfather's family never did, and he never did, um, and should have been killed nine times over. Um, meaning he, he almost lost his life nine times. Um, but uh, 
No, that's a huge legacy of of Christianity, and then the Jewish um, grandfather fleeing to Argentina after uh, the Holocaust or during, during the Holocaust. Like uh, he became a Christian through Russian uh, Christian friends, and so uh, growing up knowing my family's background with with Jesus made me have to figure it out for myself, but also like I come from a rich heritage. And I think that that's really important is to know um, your spiritual connection um, with Jesus from like where it comes from and um, and how it gets transferred from generation to generation, like Psalm 134 uh, or Psalm 140, well, sorry, Psalm 145 says is generation to generation claims your works. And so like I came from that and so I never left it and uh, it's really important to me. Um, but something that I was going to also tie in is the empowerment that comes from scripture for mixed people is so important. Mm -hmm. I feel like that that is like what helps just take down the angst and the nervousness of not being accepted. Oh, I'm not brown enough, right? In the Latino world, I'm a whiter Latina. I'm not brown enough. Um, I'm not going to be accepted. That was my that was my twenties, right? I don't speak Armenian. I'm not going to be accepted by the Armenians. And so, like, whether or not that happened, it's that knowing that I fit into Scripture and knowing that God made me unique because He used all these mixed people, like in Acts eight with um, with Philip, who's mixed, and the Ethiopian eunuch with mixed culture of Moses and, and Esther and all these people growing up. And, and so like people who've lived in the hyphen as our ancient mentors, helping us lead the way, empowering people to do that, to see their, themselves in the Bible is so healing for our mixed journey. And I say mixed journey because it's not one or the other. It's both or triple, you know, or for our kids, quadruple or whatever. And so like that mixed journey has to be found in scripture to really bring healing and to bring strength and to bring identity and to bring like, heck yes, I'm this. And I'm so proud of it, you know? And, um, there was a point I remember, um, in my life where I would only feel comfortable with other mixed people. And I was wondering if you all felt that, like there'd be out like moments where in college, where it's like, you go with the mixed group and I would be like, amen. Cause that's where I feel the most comfortable. And so it's like, it's so interesting how, when we find ourselves in with Jesus and our ethnicity, those two coming together, it's so rich with with the with scriptures coming together. It's like that's where I believe the healing truly is. You know, it's so important to remember that you know even us uh, Latinos, Boricuas like myself, right, feel that sense of exile, that that kind of diasporic exile to say, I don't belong in any of these worlds perfectly. I don't I don't know what to do about that. Right. I didn't speak Spanish the right way. I didn't eat the right foods. And so because of that, I might not have always been uh, a part of that. So I'm not mixed race in the same way. And yet I feel that same sort of exile intention. And to talk about being enfolded in the story of scripture. And is that important for all of us to see? It's so important for all of us to see how we're enfolded into the story of scripture. Uh, Nathan, you wanted to speak more on that. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, one of the things that uh, Hermana Juan uh, Rivera made me think about is how on both sides of my family, there's a long history of being committed to Christ and to Christ's bride. However, both sides of the family contain 
family members that are from very different Christian traditions. And one of the reasons I highlight this is because not only was I trying to navigate distinctively Puerto Rican aspects of culture, distinctively U.S. South aspects of culture, but even when I was with family members from any of those components, some of them are Catholic, some of them are Pentecostal, some of them are Presbyterian, some of them are Baptists, and some of them are non-denominational, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I remember initially I thought, my gosh, this is just so chaotic. I don't know who believes what and why. <laughs> this is crazy. And I know that there were times where I was tempted to try to find the right Christianity, the folks that got every jot and tittle right. But one of the things that the Lord did that was so profound is make it so that I experienced the presence of the Spirit in all these different communions. And so it was another reminder. It was like, Cartagena, listen, the Spirit's at work in all sorts of racialized places, racialized peoples, different sorts of communities, and different denominations. And part of your rich heritage is seeing that Christ is loving and caring for these for, for people of all sorts of denominational backgrounds. And I think one of the reasons that's such a gift is because it, again, enhances my understanding of how the Lord is at work throughout the entire body of the church. It's a, yet another way of checking against a kind of purity logic. They would say, okay, if it's not, if it's not, for example, the right race, the right culture, the right language, well, what's the right denomination. And my point is not to say that some denominations might not have certain things more accurately than others. That's not the point. It's instead to say, Christ forced me not only to get to a point where, as we are saying, I didn't try merely to integrate my different heritages. I was instead trying to hold the beauty of those heritages together, because I think the temptation is to drop one of them or to kick something to the curb rather than celebrate it. And the Lord was saying, and you also need to do that with these different ecclesiastical traditions. So, part again of this long uh, Christian history is that I get to see the Lord's faithfulness in so many different communions and so many different places. Brother, you made me think about the recent passing of René Padilla. I've had students reading some of his literature for the last few semesters here at Moody. I've had students reading some of his essays, his shorter essays. And I remind even, even Anglo students, even students born here in the States, right? That this brother wrote for the church not for the church in Costa Rica, not for the church in Latin America. He wrote for the church. And his brother wrote so that the church could be blessed and the church could see the importance of la misión integral. That's for all of us. And I think that's what you're, you're, you're showing, that, that as, we, as we gather the diverse pieces together, we're reminded that as the church, that, that we belong to one another in really profound ways and that this writing can bless all of us. Uh, Hermana Evangelina, I have a question for you in light of that. I've been thinking about how you have gathered the traditions that you've been given from your, from your mom. Uh, you know, she just wrote a book called Atando Cabos, where she's tying things together, speaking of tying traditions together. I'm wondering how you're expanding the traditions you've received, the traditions of your husband as well, if you can speak to that as well. Your husband is uh, Mexican-American, I believe. Uh, can you tell us more about how you're expanding those traditions, the, the traditions you've inherited within your own family? Sure. Um, so I think... Um the stories are important. It's the stories. That's where we expand because stories unite all of us, right? And there's so many different ways to tell stories. Um, I'm raising a daughter who has Black heritage, who has Puerto Rican heritage, who has Mexican heritage. Um, but I'm also raising this daughter um, in a world where she is also going to have to live in the hyphen as well. And I'm also teaching students and helping to raise those students as well. 
um, and students from all different places and um, students who are mixed and students who are not mixed. And um, again, it's the stories, that's where we expand. Um, we share stories in the places that are the most common to us. So we share stories through our food and we share stories through how we dance and we share stories in our art and in our poetry and in our music. Um, and that's where we get to really expand. And that, by the way, going back to the beginning, that, that's where with young children, uh, where we give them a chance to begin to reconcile some of those things within themselves um, and how we speak to those who can't do abstract thinking because they can relate right there in the story. You know? um, and so I think it's so important for us to continue sharing these stories. And as we share these stories, and uh, talk about our, our families and our heritage, we need to bring the story back to where their true identity is. Um, I, I like this idea of thinking that um, home is this eternal place. And so the reason we feel so out of place is because we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. And that is where our, our ultimate um, forgiveness lies. It's where our ultimate um, chance to heal lies. It's where the Holy Spirit can really work within each heart, no matter what age, um, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is. And so the story needs to come back to that place. And that's where that real um, uniting comes together. Um, that is where the reconciliation happens. That is where the covenant and the promise of Jesus Christ comes in for all of us. Evangelina, you've inherited your mother's gift to tie things together so well. Let me say, uh, sister, I'm going to throw up a question. We've never done this before. I'm going to throw up an, an audience question and I'm, it's addressed to you, Evangelina, but I wonder if all of us can tackle it. And this will be the last question that we answer before we wrap up. I'll have Elizabeth kind of summarize some of the key pieces and we'll wrap up. But the question's a little long here, so I'm going to show it to all of us here. Uh, Evangelina, again, it's addressed to you given the language of ambassador that you use, but we can all tackle it. It says, how does being an ambassador at those crossroads function when you're representing a culture that has great diversity within itself? itself. One person cannot speak on behalf of an entire people, and yet sometimes we're the only one present to bridge that gap This coming from our sister Shreya, who's joining us on Facebook. Uh, Evangelina, do you want to start at it, or do you want someone else to take it on first? Why don't you start at it first, and then we'll pass it around. Sounds good. Um, so yeah, no, um, I, I validate that. You cannot always be um, the one who is the spokesperson for that, um, but what I love about being able to be in a classroom is that I'm able to create a space where um, all my students have a chance to speak to them and to create a space where um, everybody gets to view different things from a different lens. And, um, and it has to be a place that feels safe, right? You can't do that in every single setting. Um, it needs to be a safe space where um, people can speak to them. Um, and so I guess as an ambassador, I'm not necessarily speaking for everybody, but what I'm trying to do is create opportunities where a conversation can occur. And that's part of the reason that I use the stories is because when um, you, you introduce a story in that way, um, you open a space for a conversation to get started. You have to ask questions. You wanna know more about something. Where's the backstory for this? Where's this going in the future? Um, and so again, it's about creating spaces and creating opportunities for people to be able to share. Thank you. Anyone else want to speak to that question? 
I'm happy to say a little bit. I, I like to think through the verb of amplification, so amplifying. How do I amplify the voices of the different people uh, to which I belong? And and one of the ways that this has come out uh, is that I, I've had to listen carefully to the different forms of suffering that are part of my various heritages. And this, I think, is of the utmost importance, for Christ calls us to engage and participate in the sufferings of others. So on my mom's side, I've been in trailer parks, for example, that the world wants to forget, that forms of neoliberal uh, financial capitalism want to act like, no, we've never exploited poor whites. No, I, I've seen it. I've seen the extreme suffering, and I've seen that very few people care at all. And so I get particularly outraged when people like to use poor whites as just a, a way of dismissing any forms of racism because I go, no, 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 you haven't been with those people. You don't really love them. You're not entering into their suffering. You're not trying to promote their well-being. But I've also had to come to grips with the fact that my family from Puerto Rico has been colonized and exploited as long as I have been alive and many, many decades before that. So one of the things that Lord has called me to do is, is to live into a question about what does it look like to be a, a, a Christian committed to a Trinitarian vision of decoloniality that doesn't ignore the suffering of poor whites and doesn't ignore the colonial oppression and exploitation of people uh, uh, in Puerto Rico, but enhances my capacities for justice and mercy. As I amplify the voices and the stories as we're sharing about their sufferings and say these are the ways in which they deserve forms of justice and remediation. And here are ways I see the spirit promoting liberation, promoting sanctification, promoting deeper forms of love. So the, my call is not to stand in for mamma or stand in for, for abuela, but instead to speak to and, and amplify, as it were, the experiences that they have entrusted to me. That's good, brother. Robert, as we as we say, speak to the stories that have been entrusted to us. I think of you and your new project that you started with Urban Strategies. Can you tell us about how you're you're recording histories and what we can know about that? Yeah, the project is. Thank you. Um, Nuestra Herencia, like our our heritage. If you go to nuestraherencia.com, I think. So I'm partnering with Urban Strategies to tell, like, to try to like record these forgotten stories of our abuelos, abuelos, our tios, our tias, historical figures, right? These, these stories of the Brown Church, um, th this 500-year history of loving Jesus and pursuing justice, justice, but these stories that are just, nobody knows about them. Um, even many of us Latinos and Latinas, there's so many stories, so we're trying to record that. So um, hope that you can, t you know, jump on the website and nominate your own hero, um, someone that's made a big impact in your life so that we can all learn about them and draw closer to God through it. Thank you, brother. Thank you for telling us about that project. Hey, we got one last thing to do, but let's do some closing remarks and then we'll do our book giveaway and sign off for the end of the show. Elizabeth, you got anything that you want to say to, to kind of tie this story together that we've been crafting uh, as a group? I want to put out some of the key words that um, our, our different uh, speakers have used tonight, which are important. And that is uh, the word ambassador, bridge, the importance of scripture, the importance of story, um, how it is that the arts are a language that can speak to these issues beyond just the abstract. Uh, that's an, an important piece for us. Um, how we are facilitators of spaces for people to have an opportunity for a conversation to get started. Uh, we amplify voices there. Uh, we talked about affirmation. 
advocacy. Um, we're, we're adults and we're talking now as adults, but as children, we need uh, advocates and we need to be able to help to create advocates as well in our work. Um, and we, I wanna bring us back uh, since scripture was so important to the image that uh, Robert brought to us from Revelation, where is a place for us to rehearse the validation and the celebration of the diversities, which for me is the amplification of the love of Christ. Amen. That, that's, that's, that's what this is about, is that we are debunking the myths, the boxes that people use to defend themselves against each other when they don't know enough. I want to just close very quickly. <clears throat> I grew up in a, in a Latino church that had a lot of different Latino cultures in it. Sometimes there were 14 different cultures in it. And we had to have, at meal times, we had to have different meals, you know, for different cultures and so forth. We celebrated Pan American Day, which was a day for everybody to speak about their culture and to, to bring out their flag and to talk about their, their, their journey to the United States and their immigration. And Cubans would always cry when they unfurled the flag, you know, because Castro was there and, you know, all of that. <coughs> I mean, it was phenomenal. It was a day to name one fruit that had five different names from five different countries, you know, and stuff like that. And um, we had a rule in our church. And the rule was that when you got ready to jump at somebody because, you know, you didn't know, you would say, dime mas. You would stop yourself like, Aah! right? And you would say, dime mas. And dime mas was a way of opening up the conversation, was that opportunity. Right. So when we had a, a new guy that came to the church and he went over and, you know, he was having breakfast and he didn't know that we had, you know, different meals come out of, of the little shoot there. And he had this meal and he didn't know what it was. And he's looking at it and somebody else comes with pancakes, which, of course, he knows what pancakes are. He goes, well, where did you get that? And he says, I but, you know, you have to wait for it. And he goes, ¿Y qué hago yo con esta comida de gato? Right. And the guy, everybody at the table looked at him and said, ooh, no, 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 right? Like, everybody affirmed the fact that it's a church where we don't do that here. We don't do that here, right? You can't call this comida de gato. And so everybody, you know, goes, no, 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 hermano. And he had this Peruvian brother who sat next to him. He goes, let me tell you what this is because of Peruvian food. He goes, this is this, this is this, this is this, this is this. And everybody goes, dime mas, dime mas, dime mas, right? And so we want to create spaces of dime mas. Tell me more. Tell me more. What a great discipline for all of us to have. Speaking of dime mas, some of us wanted to know more about Daniel Rodriguez and his book, A Future for the Latino Church. We had this brother on for the second episode of the season. Uh, Record, if you go ahead and throw up that uh, giveaway here in a moment, we asked you to submit questions, and I'm going to continue to ask you to submit questions. Perhaps you're going to be thinking about this episode and wondering about what you uh, have heard and wondering about some further topics of exploration. You can submit those questions using the link in our show notes once you get the episode on the podcast app. You can also call us at 312-329 or 312-725-2995-312. And leave us a voicemail with your questions. Thank you to our guests who have joined us tonight for sharing your stories, for sharing honestly. 
Uh, it was a privilege to be a part of this conversation tonight. So thank you so much for joining us. On that note, sacabo está todo. Thank you to everyone who's with us online on Facebook as well. Uh, keep make sure to re remember to follow us on all of our social media platforms at World Outspoken. Follow our guests and their ministries as well. Uh, and you can stay tuned for the next episode where we'll be joined by Reverendo Orlando Crespo, who wrote Being Latino in Christ. He's going to be joining us for the next episode. The next episode won't be live. We'll be back to normal, back on your podcast feast, uh, feeds in two weeks. Thanks for joining us, everyone. On that note, sacabo. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,